This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. My name is Rob Crane and today we have a guest. We are, our guest is Gabby Rowe, who is the president at Maestro Sports and Entertainment. Uh, Gabby, welcome to Front Office Features. Thank you. Very excited to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. And I, uh, I first off want to congratulate you. I don't, you might be the first uh, Sports Business Journal 40 Under 40 uh recipient that we have had on front office features so wow all right that's pretty cool congratulations congratulations so i appreciate it uh i i wanted to i wanted to talk with you and i'm so thankful that we got connected i uh have been doing my research about uh maestro and learning a little bit about you and you know we talk a lot about um to our audience that sports is not just, you know, a baseball team, a basketball team, a hockey team, you know, uh, the core four, we call it, and then throw MLS in there, right? So it's more than that. You want to talk a little bit about uh, Maestro, but also like, you know, what you guys do and how the heck did this even come about? Like, I'm dying to know that piece of it. How did this even, how did this even happen? Yeah. So, well, I, I didn't plan on it. Huh. Um, like the best many- ideas come that way. Like, like I said, like many things, uh, they just kind of materialize. Um, but from a, from a positioning standpoint, you know, we like to describe what we do as high growth sports, right? Emerging sports, fledgling sports, but ones that have high growth potential, uh, kind of stealing a term from Wall Street. So we kind of term them high growth sports as opposed to, let's say, what we call the more mature sports properties, your Major League Baseball, your even your NCAA basketball is a more mature sports property. Right. I work. Um, I work in. Yes. I work, in kind of I work in professional baseball, so I, I don't know if there is a more mature yes. sport than uh, than professional baseball. So I'm with you. Correct. America's favorite pastime. Yeah. Um, so, and there's, it's not right or wrong, but you're right. And thinking about careers in the sports industry. Um, very few young college kids to say, wow, I really want to get into ax throwing or break dancing <laughs> or cornhole. Uh, they say, I want to work for the Red Sox or for the Flyers or for the Green Bay Packers, right? Right. But it is an entirely entrepreneurial world out there that exists. And I was kind of attracted to it at the outset because I liked to really be able to make a difference in what I would do. And I think it's a little uh, presumptuous to think that I'm going to, you know, go join FIFA and redo the way in which global soccer is governed or run or the same thing with the NFL or baseball. 
the Eagles or the Flyers or the Seattle Seahawks, right? Yeah. But yeah. I actually stumbled across kind of the high growth sports space when I was on a completely unrelated trip to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And I saw people, this is dating myself, 1993, I think, playing soccer on the beach. And it was a recreational kind of game. And I was living in Southern California at the time. And I'm like, huh, if we could take this world's most popular sport of soccer and give it like this beach vibe and culture and kind of export this, right? Like give it like California, this Brazilian sport, give it Southern California color and pizzazz and export it mostly to Europe, but to the rest of the world that loves soccer, we could kind of be onto something here. Uh, so my friend that I was there with on an entirely different business venture, wrote a little business plan on the back of a napkin on the ride home on the airplane. And then we sought about friends and family to get it funded. And we did. Nope. So we started beach soccer company in kind of our backyard and went about trying to figure out how to grow a, a brand new emerging sport, wrote the business plan, um, overspent with some expensive agencies back in the day, ING yeah, right. and Octagon, and they, they took our money to tell us very little. Um, I take that back. They were very, <laughs> I was, they were very influential in helping us figure out how to do stuff, right? So um, one of my- On the fly. So we just did that over the course of, of I think we, we built the company over the first five or six years, made a ton of mistakes, did it, tried to make it work in the United States, couldn't make it work here financially. Most of the success of the business was extremely popular in South America, not a good economy then, but Europe was really the marketplace. Europe was eating up the sport. So that's really where we focused. I ended up buying my partner out, moving the company to Europe, uh, based it out of Monte Carlo and really started to take off once we did that. Not a bad place to base a business off of. So I have a feeling a lot of our listeners and hell, even I would say even me and Chris, Chris is my partner who we do front office yeah. features with, like you have this idea, right? And then yours was a beach soccer company and uh, others have these ideas. How did you take this thing from back of a napkin to putting, you know, revenues together and expenses together and be like, okay, now I've got a company. Like, how did you take that? Because I feel like a lot of people go, I think I've got an idea, but I don't know what the hell to do with it. How did you know what the hell yeah. to do with it? Well, we didn't, but huh. and like I said, we made a ton of mistakes. But when it started to become successful is when, because we wrote a business plan and then we had to modify the business plan to the realities of what was really possible. But most of what we did is honestly steal from others, right? That's okay. Um, right. So we were saying, well, beach volleyball has these stadiums. We could probably use those stadiums. Um, ATP tennis had a touring model with like local partners. I said, okay, we can do that. Um, nation versus nation competition seemed to be the most marketable at the top of soccer with world cups. We created a Brazilian team and an American team and a French and German and Spanish and Dutch team, not officially part of their actual governing body. We just put orange, yellow on them and called them Brazil. Now they were in many cases, former national team players. So that helped. But we created nation versus nation competitions. So we took a little bit of beach volleyball, a little bit from tennis, um, a little bit from just the overall sexy marketing appeal of a beach volleyball or the surfing brands that were coming out of Southern California. We specifically called it beach soccer and not football de playa or any of the 
We'd stayed away from foot. We wanted to be an American brand, like an American hipper, cooler, younger version of soccer, since lots of the media coming out and, and out of Hollywood was really popular. So we made a lot of positioning statements about the name and the rules of the game and what the athletes would wear. And we actually wrote into contracts with some of our players, a little bit WWE-ish of things that they that they had to do. We had an American like, guy that by contract had to bring a surfboard to every event. <laughs> So tell me, that's some of the interesting stuff. So you'd say WWE into this stuff? Like, okay, so tell me like some of the things that would go into those contracts. Create entertaining personalities from the players because they've never heard of these people before. Certainly not the Americans. They've heard of lots of the international stars. So we had kind of like the big hulking defender um, and he had a certain personality about him and we would highlight that in our promotional and marketing materials. So we had to do things to really kind of separate ourselves from the crowd um, but it was, you know, and again, a lot of these were mistakes. We made a ton of mistakes. What was the biggest time. mistake you made? Or maybe a culmination of a couple of like, it, the mistakes are good, right? You learn from them, right? So it's not like, oh my God, what an idiot. No, it's more like these mistakes help us become better. The biggest mistake I made once was trying to go into partnership with Mother Nature. That was a bad idea. Because... <laughs> uh, She's not a good partner. And when she wants to rain, she will rain. When she wants to in Yugoslavia have a high tide that takes out your stadium and ruins your entire event, that was a big mistake. Oh, my goodness. There was a, so a high tide came through and wiped out the whole place? Yes. A, a, there was a rumor that sometimes the tide gets up to a certain level, so we should only build our stadium to here. And we said, what are the chances that we're going to get this You know, once in every 10-year tide? And they had it. And it swallowed up our stadium and, and took it away. Oh my goodness! The day before the event, so that was a big mistake. A but, day before the event. Yeah. Oh we my goodness. Work, but it looked a lot different than we had planned. Um, but it was, you know, just traveling around the world in my twenties, making a lot of mistakes, but learning a lot along the way. But really, the the business plan was bits and pieces of successful things that others had done, and building it into something that would work for for us, but then obviously keeping our own personality along the way. And really that's a lot of what Maestro does now is learns from probably the 35 different emerging sports properties that we've worked with in some form or fashion. And each new property is taking bits and pieces of what worked from the others and bits and pieces of what didn't work from the others and exemplifying the good, getting rid of the bad and creating a path and a trajectory for hopeful success, but still learning along the way as you go and adapting and adjusting along the way. So I'm interested. You uh, so next after the beach soccer company, you were at Major League Lacrosse, and right. then you got to um, you know the uh, Pro Beach Volleyball. How did each of those thing, each of those steps, help you create kind of what did you wanted to do in Maestro? What did you learn there that uh, allowed you to do what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean it's it's all about relationships and experience. I made a lot of relationships and um, generated a lot of personal experience um, and relationships also that I could tap into for the future. So the, the real, the, the cool part about all three of them were wildly different, but I learned over time that, and this is nothing that's gonna blow anyone's mind, but sports property have a number of foundational elements. Almost all of them have athletes, in some cases you might have courses or what have you, but right. you have athletes, venues, media partners, sponsors, ticket sales, merchandising and licensing. You know, the, 
legal and accounting, you have the basic building blocks of this, right? Yeah, right. And they don't really change over sports. That's a thing that I do in baseball each day and you do in your day, in your daily business. There's a lot of similarities there, but building, taking those elements and building them and packaging them in the right way so that this sport can be successful um, and making big decisions about being domestic versus global and, and, you know, are you, is it a participatory sport model or is it more of a sponsored televised or ticket sales? All those things have to be contemplated, but there's a lot of similarities between all of them. And I would say Meister right now has 14 different sports properties we're working with. We've worked with about 20 um, in our, in our, you know, what is it almost 10 year history now. And um, all of them have little bits and pieces of each other in it. Right. Um, so we're learning from past successes and failures and trying to build a model that, we believe is going to be um, the most successful. So um, that's pretty much what those first three jobs that I had uh, really helped me to do um, is figure out what works and what doesn't work. And then you build the next property a little bit better, the next one a little bit better. And now we're simultaneously, me and my whole staff, we've got a whole crew of people are helping, you know, about a dozen sports properties, hopefully learn from our collective mistakes and each other's collective mistakes and what we're doing right. And hopefully they can all be successful. So I, 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 you, you talked earlier uh, and you described this high growth, right? Yeah. And I see some of your clients, right? Our good friends at Spikeball was one of our, uh, was one of our interviews. What a, what a great uh, discussion oh, that was. Awesome. Right. Great guy. Great guy. Uh, we, that was one of my favorite interviews I've ever done, but like you've got ultimate disc league, like disc golf, right? Like American cornhole league, curling, picker, pickleball. So my question is, how the hell do you know which one's a high growth and which one's like, are you telling me pickleball is high growth? Like, I'm interested, what is your process of making sure that your clients fit what you are trying to do? Does that make sense? You happen to pick a really easy one, 650% increase in participation in the last five years. That's pickleball. Sounds no good, kidding. Right? 650%. What? Say that stat again. 650% increase in participation in the last five years. Wow. See, this is, you know, I learned something. Oh, it's huge. I'm telling you, it's huge. That's crazy. Now, other sports like axe throwing aren't huge, right? Yeah. But, but I see axe bars popping up everywhere. See, that's the kid right there. You, you just pretty much hit on the whole entire crux of how you figure out if there's a real opportunity here or not. Axe throwing venues are individual venues. So what we, we look at that and said, huh, okay. You know, as individual venues is the sport of bowling, right? Yeah. But they were never bundled together into any sort. And then when the AMF and then Bolero came along and started taking, and even, you know, um, Lucky Strike came along and started a whole series of bowling alleys. And then you create a competition. Then you create media and marketing. Then you create professionals. Then you have a pro bowling tour that's promoting the sport and the, and the televised sport is sending more people to the bowling alleys. If you can control that whole ecosystem, and a lot of what we do is really try and control the entire ecosystem where spike ball, the product is the sport and the sport is the product. We love that. Right. It seems like spike ball seems perfect. People are out there running a spike ball event. Right. But when there's an entry fee paid to a spike ball event that happens in Boston, 
Spikeball, the brand and the product should really be governing and owning and managing and kind of helping that be successful. And that's some of the work that we're doing with them is controlling the competitive, what we call the competitive pyramid of the sport. Um, so a lot of what we do is try and create the ecosystem for success. And in some cases you have a number of ax throwing venues that already exist. And it's actually slightly easier to corral them all together into a common goal of let's create a competitive circuit that goes to all of your venues and also has a regional championship and then a national championship and then a world championship, which is televised and sponsored and makes money on its own, some of which comes back to you, but is really promoting the sport so more people come and get to the bottom of the pyramid and come to your venues to ax throw. And then it builds and it builds and it builds and you control the whole. And then if you control the merchandising and the licensing side of that, you have your own ax company, you have your own target company, then you really start being able to tap into all the different revenue streams that are there. You got this shit figured out. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't, but and it's taken a while to get there. But you're right. But so they're all different. I mean, pickleball has massive participation. Axe throwing has really cool venues. Uh, Spikeball has a sport that's a product that's also the sport. So you take the basic elements of that and then you start saying, okay, what about venues? What about television sponsors? What about athletes? What about those other building blocks? And you find a way to piece all those things together to hopefully um, really start to turbocharge the model. And we have a, uh, and Cornhole is a really good example of a sport where the popularity was growing. ACL has done a tremendous job at both the participatory side of it, as well as the, um, what you see on ESPN, which is them. There are 15,000 cornhole leagues taking place in bars all across the country that are part of ACL. It's incredible. Cause I, I, it's just everyone, uh, I see, you know, I, am looking at the, uh, at cornhole and the ACL is like, they have done an amazing job. You know, they're on ESPN and you got the two cameras going and the guys throwing and like, they've made it so dramatic, uh, playing cornhole yeah. that everybody does in their backyard. And that's what you see here, all the way at the bottom, 15,000 leagues all across the country. It's like a Tuesday night bowling league at the bowling alley, except you go to the, the, the bar and play with your buddy and you put your $10 in and you're winning a little prize money and grabbing a few beers with your friends. That's the foundation of it all. They're benefiting from that. Now where Cornhole is now, and, and Stacey Mortar runs out, a brilliant guy. He is now creating a Cornhole board manufacturing organization and really turbocharging that so that it's not the random companies that are making money selling all the cornhole boards. They're going to become a leader in the cornhole board and bag business, either by licensing or by manufacturing. And then, like I said, that's the ecosystem that you're trying to control. And in these small sports, you can do it. Like we're not about to go and create a new ecosystem for baseball and own and control all the different elements of baseball, but you can do it in break dancing. You can do it in spike ball. You can do it in ultimate Frisbee. You can do it in these smaller sports you're not always going to check every single box, but the more you check, the more control of the ecosystem that you have, the better off you're going to likely be at the end from a pure business standpoint, as well as a sports growth standpoint. And that's yeah. the kind of stuff that we help them do. It's like, uh, you ever hear the, the, uh, the ESPN, the Ocho, like every client yeah. of yours is like, is exactly uh, the ESPN. The Ocho. <laughs> and jokingly called Ocho sports marketing. That's, that's come around uh, <laughs> I, quite a bit. I, I say yeah. that. In a, in and so, a, but it's, 
here's the thing, and I was quoted about this, and uh, and, it, and it showed up a couple of places, and I thought it was kind of cool, albeit slightly off color. But like every sport was a crazy ass idea at one point in time. Right. I I totally agree. Throw with a you. ball. Full of Right. Throw a ball into a peach basket. That's fucking what? stupid. And right? I got to bounce it? <laughs> then you got to bounce it too. That's, you know, but, you know, basketball. I mean, all these sports were like, you know, kicking a ball through a, a rectangle. It's like, well, that's, what the hell is that? Well, that's soccer. And now it's the most globally pop. Hit a ball over a net. Okay, what? Yeah. Packaging, positioning, structuring, all the things that we do. Um, and, I, and I tell you, probably the, the most... Um, efficient uh, sport that we've been involved with is a guy came to me about five years ago saying, hey, I want to take this activity of breakdancing and give it some sort of form and structure. Um, we said, okay. Um, so we came up with a cool name, UDEF, the Urban Dance and Education Foundation, UDEF. Ah, very um, cool. started the pro breaking tour. There were a whole number of existing breaking tour, breaking events that were already out there. We cut deals with them and sanctioned them and kind of morphed them together. Anyway, we had great support from monster energy and a bunch of sponsors. We were able to get involved only live streamed and streamed and, and post-produced content. There was no television in, in the beginning and fast forward five years later, full metal sport at the 2024 Olympic games in Paris. So an idea went from, you know, sitting in a guy's, you know, office talking about it one day and five years later, it's a full Olympic sport. And no one can believe, myself included, that breakdancing is actually in the Olympics, but it is. Um, and again, we needed venues, we had athletes, we had, you know, spawn, we had all of those things. We just kind of packaged it and put it together in a way and took this sport of break into that most people, myself included, kind of thought that the heyday had kind of come and gone in the 80s. Yeah, right. Now it's back and it's huge. And it's going to be the coolest, hippest sport at the games in Paris. I'm telling you, it's going to like take over a little bit of what beach volleyball did when that entered the Olympic scene or what snowboarding did when it entered the Olympic scene. It's going to be all the rage in 2024. Um, and then thereafter, and now we've created a whole global economy around that sport, which is just really cool to be able to do that. Now, by the way, when I say we, we played a tiny little role in it, a tiny role, but we were there in the beginning and that's kind of cool and kind of fun. That I think is the most rewarding part of, of my job and my colleague's job is when you've played a part in helping to create something, even though other people are more important in the process, but we played our part and then you can see it come to life. That's pretty cool. That's, that's really rewarding. That's awesome. So one of the things that I, when I look at your company and I look at kind of what you do, I also see you being a leader in leveraging, this is just my opinion, leveraging new media rights, right? So like the ability to leverage streaming activations, the ability to leverage social media. And I feel that our audience and where I'm kind of seeing uh, people entering our business is they're trying to understand uh, that new media landscape. I'm not sure it's news or the right word, but the new media landscape, right? We're not talking about CBS on Saturday mornings, right? Yeah. How have you learned to leverage those, those streaming assets, promoting everything on social, streaming on social? How have you taken that and now have made, you know, breakdancing, Olympic yeah. sport. Not that you made right. breakdancing Olympic sport, but I think you understand where I'm trying to go. I, 
I completely do it. And you're right. And the, the beauty of all of this is that digital content has made the world really small. So you can have a global sports property now quickly, like breakdancing, structured the way that it's structured, whereas 15, 20 years ago, it's nearly impossible because you just don't have the ability to have an event broadcast. Mass media was really not that mass back in the day. Now it is. It reaches the masses. It reaches the whole entire world. So we talk a lot about what we just call our aggregated audience. What is the sports aggregated audience? It's not just their television rating or their live stream. It is the aggregated audience of every single person that is engaging with that brand, whether it's a TikTok video or an Instagram post or a live stream or a super cool clip that they're seeing 30, 40 seconds of, the aggregated audience of that is really the, the key to finding your roots in that, figure out what's working and then doubling down on that and hopefully have it grow extremely fast. And it can happen now with the digital side of things. And we're not, I, I, don't, I would not say that we're, digital marketing experts as much as we are make some really fucking cool content around yeah. your sport and then let it do its work by itself let it germinate on its own but give it a lot of opportunity to do that through all the different social media platforms all the different digital distribution platforms and make sure your brand is cool make sure the content looks good make sure your sponsors are included in it so they're getting the benefit from it all Make sure you're promoting your athletes to start giving them a fair amount of name recognition. And you really want to kind of check all those little boxes. And then usually if you're doing all that well, it's either going to grow because the content is good or it's not. And then you got to change up what you're doing. And the marketplace will tell you pretty quickly whether or not they like a video or they like a post because the numbers are sitting right at the bottom of the square on the screen. They will tell you. Are you and looking at that at a, such a granular level? Like, let me see what this post does. Or are you saying like, all right, we've got a concept and we've got a strategy that I'm going to implement for, I don't know, a month, yeah. two months, three months. Are, are, how are you measuring that? And how quickly, you know, you don't want to be reactionary, but you want to act quickly, right? So like, how do you go around that fine line of not saying, oh, that's screwed up. Let's change everything to, well, that's not doing real well but we need to see how it goes. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a fine line there. And the beautiful part about this is creating the content is generally, if you own the rights, right? If you have the rights to a breakdancing event, right? And you own the rights to distribute that. We basically went with the strategy early on in breakdancing of throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks, right? Yeah. Full live streamed yeah. event. 30, 45 second videos of breakdancing routines, quick cut ones. Uh, this, so we had all, so we put it all out there. The biggest response we got was a um, kind of a personality piece around a Korean teacher who also would travel around the world participating in breakdancing events. By far the most popular video of all of them. So they cared about the personal stories behind the athletes. And someone who had like, you know, teacher by day, B-girl by night yeah. was super cool. So then we did like 30 more of them, right? And then yeah, right. Kept going really well. Then, we're, then we created, you know, take, then we also knew that certain highlights, so we would basically throw a bunch of stuff against the wall, see what the response was over the course of two to three weeks, and then double down on the stuff that worked, get rid of the stuff that didn't, 
and then try and learn from that and grow from there. And it's, it's a relatively <coughs> simple process if you have content production rights and, and content production capabilities. So I, I definitely, uh, the change in this is leveraging that and doing it so fast on social, right? Yeah. It's like the media landscape is just not like, is my thing on television. Uh, it's like, that's uh, mm-hmm. part of like the last thing to think about. How has that media landscape changed over your career and saying like, all right, when I'm with Major League Lacrosse, I would assume like, I got to get on TV. But then now it's like, I've got to make sure that my Instagram video about the Korean teacher who break dances tonight is way different. Tell me about that evolution. Yeah, the funny part about it is it should have evolved a lot faster. And what's slowing it down, in my personal opinion, is that brands who are in for these hydro sports, our primary revenue stream is normally brand sponsorships. It's not ticket sales. It's not television rights fees. In some cases, it's participant fees for kind of the participatory sport. But really, brand sponsorships is normally the number one source of revenue. And brands to this day still have an easier time spending money on things that are televised on Nielsen rated networks and cable stations than they do a Instagram video. I'm super surprised that, and like, like I said before, the first brand that really got it and really was behind breakdancing's growth for us with UDEF was Monster Energy because they didn't even have television advertising. They're all about getting their eyeballs and their audience through digital. So they kind of doubled down with us and they were a brilliant partner that way. So I'm surprised more brands haven't done that. It, it should be the aggregate, it should not matter to a brand if someone is seeing content that they're sponsoring on their cell phone, on their television screen or on their computer screen. But for some reason, and I think it's ad agencies and just the old way of doing things still holding on, it's just a lot easier for a brand manager to convince his boss to sponsor something that's on CBS than it is something that's airing on YouTube. It's just, I don't know if it's an age thing, but it should have, that, that, that process should have turned faster. 10, 15 years from now, we're not going to give a flying crap where the eyeballs come from as long as you have the eyeballs. That's why the aggregated audience is really the key and how the brand message is getting across to the aggregated audience. But still to this day, people are kind of holding on to the more traditional television. I don't know why, but they are. So we have to react to that. In many cases, we do encourage our sports properties to get the more traditional television because that's what's going to get them more sponsorship. um, And that's what is the lifeblood of their company. So we have to play the game until the smart brands hopefully figure it out first and the rest of them follow. I think we're all waiting on that. Uh, And sometimes the leagues too, right? Is that they're trying to be on television. It's like, that's a, that's yeah. a, that's, well, I, I get it. Right. You, you get it to some point and you know, cause you look at the NFL and you look at the top a hundred. Thing is pretty, they played yeah. a big part in getting the up there. Yeah, you're right. You're, you are, you are right. So I'm, I'm, I want to dive a little deeper into maestro itself, like the business, like tell me like when you talk to spike ball or uh, you know, the international ax throwing federation, you come in there and you call you're you're on your first meeting. You are saying 
what to them. I can do fill in the blank. Um, again, the, the cheesy line that I try not to use is we help high growth sports properties grow. So, and then my, right. So you, you, that's, that's, that's the kind of the cheesy opening line. Although I don't actually say that, but I just did. So I guess I do. <laughs> um, really, we don't care where you are on the trajectory of your sport. You could be an idea like breakdancing was, you can be like curling and have been around for a hundred years, but we are confident that once we get to understand what really makes your brand tick and what is going to be the most important way for you to grow your brand moving forward. And we look at it, honestly, from a completely capitalistic standpoint, what is going to be able to benefit your bottom line the most with your business moving forward. Um, and normally we can immediately after having a five minute conversation with them, figure out, well, this is important, this is important, and this is important. Might be more events, you got to grow globally and you need to increase your sponsorship revenue. Say it's those three. Yeah, right. Well, here is how we did for yeah. these other 17 sports properties, how we did those three things. And some of those same things will apply. Some of them will be different. So there's almost always, and I think we started by saying stealing from others, right? Almost always ways that we're almost stealing from one client. And the more clients we have, the smarter that we get. It's almost artificial intelligence internally <laughs> because the more clients we have, the more we're all learning from each other. Yeah, right. We sit in the middle of it all and we are kind of bringing in all these good ideas and pushing them back out. And with when a new client comes through the door, I mean, right now we're working with a new one called Karate Combat, really, really cool mixed martial art based out of Budapest. And they're doing a lot of things right already, but they're doing a, quite a few things that they're not quite optimizing that we have helped other sports properties optimize them. So we're pretty confident we can do it with karate combat as well, or spike ball or cornhole or any of these other ones. How many people are on your, how many employees do you have? 12. 12. So I'm interested uh, through your time with Maestro and then obviously in the other ones, a lot of our audience, as you well know, is starting their careers, right? Or they just started their careers and they're kind of looking to take the next step. I'm interested from your perspective. What have you seen? uh, We use the line, how are you going to separate yourself, right? So like, how do you go from a bunch of applications to hired? What have you seen that helps separate people uh, to make them, you know, killer employees. Yeah. Uh, I've really boiled it down to four really simple things. And they're going to sound so simple that it's going to be like, well, yeah, of course. But we take these four things really seriously. You only really, I mean, in our business collectively, yours and mine, Rob, you know, you don't need to be <laughs> six foot six. You don't need to run a 4240. You don't know how to split an atom. But you need four things. If you're smart and you're hardworking, you have people skills and you care, you can do really well in this business and you can do really well at a young age, regardless of your gender, height, weight, doesn't matter. Right? Right. Smart. Right. I think people skills. You got to uh, smart, <laughs> hardworking <laughs> people skills and care. Those are the four. Then you have to work your connections. Amen the people skills part of it but if someone can't figure out some way to connect with me during the interview process 
you already have, you and I have never met each other before. You researched, you kind of, you knew enough about me to engage me in a conversation where I'm like, you know what? This guy is smart. He's, he's obviously got people skills. He cares enough to have researched me. And I'm assuming he's hardworking because this is his second job and, you know, from what he's done before. So you've already expressed that, not that you're looking for a job, obviously, but those same qualities need to come across. Um, First off, the first big litmus test for me is do they know that I'm a guy, not a girl? That's the first one. That's the first one. And everyone say, oh, um, they write me an email. Oh, Mrs. Rowe, it's been so great following your career. See ya. Do some research. Know who you're going to you got to be smart. You got to. And the thing is, the last two are the hardest ones. People, skills, and caring. You can't teach a lot them. Of hardworking, really. smart people. People, skill, you, people, skills can be honed. Honed. I agree. Right? I agree with you. I agree um, with you. Um, but you got to care. You got to give a shit. And your employer knows and the person interviewing knows if you're there just to collect the paycheck and do the job because it's close to where your girlfriend's house is, that's going to really not end up well at all. So we just ferret those people right the hell out the door. Um, but it's if you have those four qualities and you use your connections it's really not that hard. Anyone can be successful in this business if you have those four qualities. Um, and I think it's kind of, yeah, thank God. Right. Because you got yeah. uh, guys like me, yeah. who's far, you know, C's uh, exactly. get degrees sometimes. Um, but I think, so that goes to smart. Smart doesn't have yes. to be straight A's at Princeton. Right. Nope. That has, that's, that's, uh, that's not Green always smarts are much more important than book smarts. Yeah, I, I agree, though I do think, in my opinion, that some smarts has to come across as, I think now, more than ever, as we are in a digital age, you got to know how the hell to write. You know, you've got to yes, be able to you write you as an, uh, an email, uh, a memo, right. a letter, whatever that the communication is, a text, right? Like, you've got to know how to create that, configure that where you don't sound like too arrogant or too um, relaxed. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think I, we call it the business tone. The what tone? The business tone. Business. You have to have the right business tone. First off, spelling, punctuation, you got to nail all that stuff. That's, right. that's, you know, fifth grade stuff, right? But then you got to adopt the right business tone for the, for the job. Like, don't come at me with full scientific big word stuff. Cause that's the wrong business tone for maestro, but don't also be like, yo bro, your company sounds cool. Right. So we work on business tone, even with our employees, the ones in the beginning that need a little more honing. Right. Um, and uh, it's kind, that stuff's kind of common sense, but yeah, back to your smarts one. I don't even look, I don't give a shit what someone's GPA was. And I don't, right. I don't even look at it. I do the I same thing. They put it on the, the people put on the resume and I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I truly don't care. I don't care. And I kind of don't care where they went to school either. Um, yeah, and I kind of don't care if they have a sports degree. Same. I, I kind of do because at least it shows that they have at least some interest in the industry that helps me get to care i get quicker than uh, if you're using your full points that helps me get to care more quickly that is exactly correct they show that they care enough to major in it so one would think that they would care about being employed in it um 
So yeah, those four, and by the way, I used to have like six and then I had three and like those four are the ones and 30 years of doing this, those are the ones that have really determined are the, the key elements to it. But street smarts is probably more savvy might be a better word than smart, but some people don't really understand the nuance of what savvy means. Neither do I probably, but uh, <laughs> those are the four that I think are what you have to not only have, but show your prospective employer the respect of bringing those four elements to life in your letter, in your interview, and all, everyone is reachable, right? LinkedIn, Facebook, and if someone can't, if a prospective employee doesn't write me a note with some level of customization to it to show me the respect that they actually looked into what our company does or my background and my history, it's like me calling on Gatorade and not understanding what the core tenements of their product is all about for a sponsorship. I shouldn't be calling, right? And they shouldn't be calling me for a job unless they've given the respect of showing that they have those four qualities by expressing that and also getting to me in a way, which is we're going to have to do that in this job. We're going to have to have enough people skills to connect dots A, B, C, and D. And if I'm at E, they've got to make sure they can make those connections or we're going to hire people that do. I call it effort. I call it effort and attitude, right? It's really kind of two things yeah. that you can control in life, right? You yeah. can control how hard you work, which is your effort. And you sure as hell can control if you do it with a smile on your face. If you do yeah. those two things, well, I'll give you full effort. and I'm going to be happy when I do it. Like I'll teach you how to press the buttons. I'll teach you how to pick up the phone and sell a ticket yeah. or sell a sponsorship or yeah. do that. That's the easy part, but I can't teach you mm-hmm. that like, you know, you've got to be doing this at nine o'clock at night. You've got to care. That kind of goes into your, one of your points. You've yeah. got to want to work. If you don't want to do this, then like, fuck, I'll find somebody else who does. I had a, a good family friend of mine, Ivy league educated kid who misspelled the name of my company twice. Oh, good. And, he, and I'm like, I know maestro ends with an O my last name is R-O-E. So Maestro ends with R-O-E. You got to figure that out too. And then don't miss, and they spelled it right twice and wrong twice. You got to, it's uh, it's a little things and sometimes you rush. And sometimes if you rush, you don't mean to do it, but it sends the totally wrong message. It's a tough. And again, hit. I've made a million mistakes in my of course, life. Told me of course. I FedExed my proposal to UPS. That was a bad idea. <laughs> is that true? I spent, I sent UPS a sponsorship pitch via FedEx. What an idiet. <laughs> Did they respond so we to you? We FedEx them all. We're going to like, Hey, let's go to 20 brands. We'll FedEx them out just so they get there the next day. We know that they received this is back in the, in the nineties. And the guy wrote me back a note saying, <laughs> No thanks. If you don't have the courtesy, you know, you realize you fed exit to me. You, you said it nicely, but I was like, I'm such an idiot. So let's just all make a statement. Gotta learn from them. You just like bury your head. You're like, how stupid was that? I've totally yeah. done it. And uh, I've, done, I've done a number of those things, but the key is, did I do it a second time? No. So yeah. that's the key. Right. Right. So as you um, as you kind of look into what's next at Maestro and you kind of look what's yeah. next in high growth, where do you see the sports industry going? And I'll take it not only just in Maestro and the high growth, but like 
where do you see the sports industry going? I kind of have my opinions on kind of where everything is kind of trending, but what is yours? Where is, where is sports going? Are you seeing, uh, you know, you know, especially through COVID, are you seeing that in persons are going to come way back and this is the quote unquote roaring twenties again, is this uh, a, a media uh, play that you see that's growing like crazy? Where do you see kind of this industry running next? What do you think is next? Uh, I think generally speaking, there's a few kind of tent poles of the sports properties. And I'm going to, I'm going to stay in the emerging space because that's all I really know. Yep. I'm, not going to be, I'm not about to advise Goodell on what he should be doing next with the NFL. Um, but you can't, the, the big elephant in the room now, and so far it seems to be great, is sports gambling is a great business. Right. So, and again, I spent 10 years of my life living in Europe where, you know, the queen fills out a parlay card every week in England, right? Like on the EPL matches, it's like part of lifestyle gaming on sports in Europe is kind of part of lifestyle over here. It's kind of still by some scene as a dirty word that's going to evolve. And there's going to be a wagering element much more so integrated into sports for sure. And the quicker that you're getting on the front end of that and on the front foot of that, the better off that sports property is going to be. If you control the full ecosystem, if it's a participatory sport that you can play and you want to watch it and you want to consume it via every single digital and in-person metric you possibly can, and you can wager on it and it becomes part of your lifestyle and your personality, then you really are building a true next century fan when they are engaging with your sports property in deep and meaningful ways. And they can so much easier now to make a connection with the athletes is so much easier through social and digital to make a connection to the sport with all the ways in which content can be consumed, all the shoulder programming, the wagering side of it. If you actually play the sport yourself as well, although when you wager on it, you kind of feel like you are playing the sport. Yeah, right. Um, if your product and licensing and merchandising back to spike ball for a second is also part of your ecosystem. And if you can control the whole ecosystem and it feeds each other, then that's, I think where the future of high growth sports are certainly there. You have to control as much of your ecosystem as you as you possibly can. And you need to deliver back to your fans in a way that want them continuing to engage with you more and more and more because fans want their fans are fanatics, right? And the fanatics, they want as much as they can possibly consume as long as it's good. Right. Right. And if I can re-engage with something I'm fanatic about, cause I'm playing it and I'm wagering on it and I'm wearing their colors and I'm, you know, my friends are doing the same thing and it's parts of my community. That's when, you know, if you can control and deliver on an ecosystem within your sports property, that I think is kind of the holy grail of the next generation of, at least on the emerging sports side. And by the way, look at the bigger sports. A lot of them have done a fair amount of that already, right? And NFL is the big kahuna or international soccer, right? Or even, you know, the Manchester Uniteds of the world and the Brazilian national soccer team and the NFL have done a pretty good job of that. I think UFC, I think is the best example of a sports property that's doing a lot of it really right. 
as far as controlling their own ecosystem on the emerging sports space. And yeah, they went from a bad idea 10 years ago to selling for $4 billion. So that doesn't hurt either. So that's a pretty good example. And I use them a lot as the example for that reason. What do you think that the UFC is doing exceptionally right, maybe better than anybody else? Controlling their ecosystem. Controlling the whole thing from fight from the whole world, the sponsorship to fight athletes, island to athletes, to the events, to the sponsors, to the brand, to then making UFC gyms, to then making UFC apparel, to doing a deal with the Reeboks of the world, but still maintaining a lot of the, the you know, it was more of a UFC deal than a Reebok. They've just really done a good job of thinking UFC first with almost every single one of their ventures. Um, you know, they don't, I mean, they're not yet to the point, but they, I mean, even to the point of Fight Island was their own venue, right? Right now yeah, they right. have T-Mobile, you know, arena or for their things, you know, the day's probably not too far where they're going to have their own venues and their own gyms and their own content. So they've done a lot of stuff right when it comes to controlling their entire ecosystem. Um, it's slightly more difficult because that sport is one from a, a participation standpoint is polarizing, right? It's not like you're going to go out with your buddies and you can, I, you and me can go in our backyard and play cornhole. We're not going to go out in the backyard and start choking each other out. <laughs> most days of the week. Most um, days of the week. Most days of the week. So participatory wise, they might, is the one box where they might not check, but that's just not what the sport's all about. The more casual sports, we're developing a few right now that have all of those elements in them. And they have the participatory side, they have their own venues, they have their own merchandise, they have their own content. They're going to control the athletes, but a bit, but a bit, but a bit. That I think is the future is when you can do all that. And I think UFC has probably done that better than anyone that I can think of as an example in the high growth space. In the last yeah. 10 years. yeah. I, and I also think that they have uh, welcomed uh, you, you brought up uh, sports betting. They just did that big deal with DraftKings, right? Yeah. And um, I, I think that they do, they've done a great job in that space. And I think you even look at like emerging sport, Drone Racing League, right? Drone Racing League has DraftKings on there and their content is streamed on. ACL, last week it was just announced. Uh, oh, oh, they, Cornels with DraftKings uh, draft too, right? DraftKings deal. Um, we were involved in it. Again, many other people were as well, but we were involved in it. And on top of that, we're going to have some, and we have a new sports property that's coming out that's going to have DraftKings as a partner too that I can't announce yet. But the, and we're going to have exclusive broadcasts that are only available through DraftKings. Really? To wager on. So it's going to be like your Friday night wagering stream, um, separate from anything on ESPN or NBC or CBS or anywhere else that's only available kind of through and in partnership with DraftKings with all kinds of betting odds around it on your actual screen. It's going to be a really cool integrated program. Where you can bet on it live in the emerging sports space. So that's where the high growth sports like NFL is not doing that with the DraftKings. They're not going to start reinventing the way in which their Thursday night game is not going to be on DraftKings and yeah, only right. available through DraftKings. But you can do that in Cornhole and some of these other sports problems that we work with, and we're moving towards that. So again, that's part of the ecosystem. That's another box to check is the wagering side of it and the merchandise side of it. You control the ecosystem, then you really start to um, have something, but you got to deliver to the fans, right? You can't just control it and deliver a shit product. You got to control it in a way that they want more and more and more. This is awesome. I, I Gabby, I have so 
enjoyed this conversation and with our with our group is there you know uh our 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 our, our audience is, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurial, they're all just trying to get that next step right there. I give them, a, if you're listening to our podcast, right, you're trying to make your career better, right? You're just not listening to, you know, crap stuff. You're trying to make your career better. So for those people, they're, they, they fall into your care category pretty well, right? And they're uh, trying to improve on the other ones. What were you, what would your, what would the best advice, uh, whether it's what you've received or what you can give to someone who's just trying to get started or is in, we'll call it early mid career. That's, you know, trying to take it to the next level. Well, they won't believe it necessarily when I first say this, but all of them have in their existing relationships, the connections that they need to further their career in whatever way they want to move it forward. They should think of what is the ultimate job for me? What job do I want? And let's say it's a job to work at. I'm going to make it up. Uh, let's go at UFC, right? Okay. Yep. Someone that they know knows someone. You know someone that works there. Oh, the Kevin Bacon rule without a doubt. He's the Kevin Bacon <laughs> five degrees of separation. In sports, it's two or three degrees of separation. I, I believe that. Right? Yep. So if they know you... And they say to you, hey, do you know anyone that knows anyone at UFC? Your answer is going to be yes. I do. I know someone who works at I know. I do know someone who works at UFC. You say, well, I know Gabby and Gabby knows someone that works there. Yeah, right. right. I know and I trust you, right? And you trust this kid. And then my buddy at UFC trusts me. I've never hired anyone ever. 30 years. It wasn't recommended by someone that I trust. Or someone that I trust vouched for them. And if you're in a sports marketing program, if you're in any sports related business at all, or you have neighbors, or you went to school with other people, which almost everyone did, you're probably three degrees of separation away from someone who's in a decision-making capacity for the job that you want. Find that job, connect those dots. You, it's amazing. They're going to be like, not me. And then I ask, you can ask them four or five questions. They're going to figure out, oh my God. Uh, I really do. Just because even if it's just a fellow alumni from a school, you can track them down. LinkedIn, Facebook, you say, hey, you went, to, you went to Carolina. I went to Carolina. You know so-and-so. I know so-and-so. Um, you, know anyone that, uh, you know anyone that works at UNC Athletic Department because you want to go work there? Believe me, you're three separations away from anyone, any job that you want. You've got to make it happen. Ah, that's great advice great advice to end on uh i think that our listeners would uh, appreciate that a lot gabby i want to thank you a million times uh for spending your tuesday night uh talking to me uh, about this and uh i i found our conversation just wonderful and uh thankful uh that we had the opportunity so a million thank yous much appreciated uh for joining me here on uh, front office feature so thank you my pleasure let's do it again sometime awesome no problem